0: Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I have a very special show for you today. Today, we are going to take on the final opera of the great composer Giacchino Rossini, the final opera that he composed at the age of 37, even though he lived another 40 or so years, William Tell. Guillaume Tell.
1: William Tell.
0: For longtime listeners of Opera for Everyone, you may recognize that voice. That is the voice of Grant. How are you all doing? And I have a special treat for you. I have not one, but two co hosts joining me today.
2: Hi, it's Kathleen. Kathleen
0: and Grant are here. So I have a literary specialist (laughs) and a historical specialist. Not that I'm trying to pigeonhole you two, you both have. (laughs) Many, many talents. And I am so grateful because I need quite a staff on hand. This is a big, big grand opera. A
1: grand opera in every sense of the word.
2: Epic, you might even say. Yes. Yes, this is Grant and, and Kat together for the first time on Opera for Everyone. Very exciting. I know.
1: <laughs> I've never seen her before in my life.
2: I know. It's it's I amazing. Just,
1: I was wandering by the studio and you guys were set up to record and I you saw you through again. the
2: window. We said, hey, Grant, do you know anything about the Habsburgs?
1: (laughs) And sure enough, I
0: do. I'm so thrilled to have you both here because there's a lot going on. We have nationalism. We have family dynamics. We have the glories of nature and the mountains.
2: We have star-crossed lovers. We have archery. To we ever <laughs>
1: And it ain't over till the cows come home
2: <laughs> Well, just a, a
0: tiny bit of background here. Rossini was wildly successful with his career, most of which he lived in Italy. And then he moved on and lived in Paris, and he had a number of operas that he premiered there. Some of you who've listened to earlier shows of ours will remember Le Compteurie, episode 73, which premiered in Paris just the year before this one in 1828. This premiered in 1829, but very different. That was a comic opera. This is a grand opera based on a serious subject, and Kathleen's going to fill us all (laughs) in on the source material. But about now, I think we need to get ourselves ready to listen to what remains of this very famous overture to William Tell. It started out with that mournful cello. The overture is justly famous on its own, and and I think quite a lot of people will know it from its name, the William Tell Overture. And some of you may be humming what you know is coming up. But the most famous part, at least to Americans and possibly worldwide, is at the end of the Overturn, and I promise you, you'll get to hear that on our show. (laughs) But it starts out very quietly, quite a pastoral scene. And the sense of the pastoral becomes even more enhanced in a very Swiss manner, where Rossini will reach into the available folk tunes where he will make use of a tune that is familiar to the Swiss as a way of taking the cows out to pasture and bringing them back. Grant, I think you know something about this, this call for the cows.
1: So this song is one of those things that gets repurposed in the Romantic era. It's unclear exactly where it comes from, but we know that it starts popping up everywhere when we arrive into the Romantic era, the early 19th century. And people start talking about it as this symbol of Swiss nationalism and of the power that this music has to induce nostalgia. Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote that this song was forbidden to be played near Swiss mercenaries, lest they be deeply afflicted with a desire to return to their homeland.
0: That's some powerful music. So Rossini makes use of it here and it will be this bridge between this very peaceful music that is the beginning of the overture and it will evoke this nationalism which is a key part of this entire story of William Tell. And it's gonna launch us into this, this galloping conclusion to the overture that gets the heart pumping and you know something exciting is gonna happen. Opera for Everyone, and that was the William Tell Overture. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and you're in luck. I have two co-hosts with me today. I have Kathleen Vanderwill, and I have Grant. I'm so glad you are both here.
2: We are so glad to be here, Pat.
1: I'm glad to be here, too. It was cold outside. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Glad we took you in. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, you'll have to work for the warmth and tell us everything you know about the history of this piece.
1: How long do you have?
2: This is a four-act opera. It covers a lot of
0: topics and a lot of ground. By the way, we should acknowledge his librettists. Victor Joseph Etienne de Jouy and hippolyte louis florent B. also helped with the writing of the libretto. But they weren't the beginning of it. Kathleen, can you tell us a little bit about the origin of this story?
2: Absolutely. So I'll work backwards a little bit. The origin of the story, as we know it in the opera, is from Friedrich Schiller's 1804 play, William Tell, which is is quite a bit different, I would say. I think a lot of the source material that I've talked about in previous episodes tries to hew fairly closely to the structure. This really restructures, renames almost all of the characters, but it takes its its heart and its inspiration from this Friedrich Schiller play. He was very good friends with an Old friend of ours, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He has shown up in some way in every opera for everyone episode that I have done with Pat. He is haunting <laughs> us. He was best friends with Goethe, and Goethe loved Switzerland and had just visited Lake Lucerne, which is where this takes place. Had come back inspired by some old myths and stories of William Tell, because the story itself, I would say is, I, we don't even really know how old it is. It's one of those really old myths, kind of like King Arthur or Beowulf. So he wanted Schiller to write a play about it. And Schiller resisted for a while, but then a rumor started that Schiller was working on a play. And so he said, okay, well, I guess I'll just write one then. I like to think Goethe started the rumor himself. So he
0: kind of shamed <laughs> him into it. He he shamed it, him he into <laughs> it.
2: He wanted him to write the <laughs> Swiss nationalist play. And Schiller was like, I'm not Swiss. Why would I do that? Oh no! But such as it is, the play premiered in 1804, and Goethe was the director of the first, the first performance. He directed plays too. That Goethe, Goethe and Schiller, both German everyman, they they were they did many things, including directing plays. And as we'll see, it really took off and became incredibly popular, and is the Swiss nationalist story now. Well,
0: Grant. Am I right in believing 1804 was a good time for people to be asserting some nationalist sentiments?
1: Yeah, it's right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, these wars that kick off with the French Revolution into the rise of Napoleon to power in France, and as a result, the massive territorial, cultural, and political changes that shook Europe for quite some time after that.
2: Yeah, and and to add to that a little bit, we also see this echoed in, it's a literary movement of romantic nationalism around this time. So Goethe had a reason for wanting Schiller to give the Swiss their their nationalist work, because right around this time, we start seeing a push to have a work that represents your culture. Yeah,
0: it's an interesting time. And, well, certainly the 1804 publication date of the play things are still very much up for grabs we don't know how it's going to play out and it's a little different when the opera is premiering in 1829
1: well yeah because napoleon at that point has been firmly defeated but the ideas that got kicked up are are very much still in the air so 1804 is shortly after the swiss government the swiss government under napoleon had been reorganized as a result of a long-running conflict between the Swiss and Napoleon over their different ideas of nationalism and what that meant, that Napoleon had tried to create something much more centralized where Switzerland had traditionally been a much more decentralized place. Of course, by the 1820s, 1830s, all of that was ancient history and things were moving very quickly as Europe began to Move towards the shape that we know it as uh, today.
2: Would you say that by the time we get to 1830, the reception of a story like William Tell would have been less revolutionary than in 1804? I, when I was reading it, I kept thinking of how how terrified everyone in Europe was that that the French Revolution would happen to them. And I could imagine that a work like William Tell would be censored in some places. But by 1830, I imagine that's that's no longer the case. Well,
1: I mean, as you point out, there's still a lot of conflict in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, ruled by the Habsburgs. We'll get back to them later. And that William Tell as a story played an important part in that. So there were still, there were still wars and rumors of wars and revolutions and uprisings, and they would continue to be, the famous ones in 1848 and gradually throughout the entire century, it turns out that Switzerland itself as a particular country had settled down to a large extent after 1815. That's the the Mm. famous thing about Switzerland is they've been neutral in everything since 1815. But yeah, it's all still very much in, in flux. but it's in flux in a very different way when there's a monumental war raging across the continent versus when it's these internal conflicts in countries occasionally spilling into external conflicts.
0: All right, that's a good bunch of background of what's going on at the time the play is written, the opera premieres, but we're talking about 13th century Switzerland when the story is set. And and it's a legend that pre-exists the writing down of all of this. Kathleen, I know you're going to give us some more background later, but I think it's time to hear some more music. I agree. So let's hear a little bit about these These folks in this village, the canton that William Tell is from, his countrymen, his people. Listening to Opera for Everyone, and today's opera is William Tell, the French version, the original version. There's some dancing, because there's always dancing in a French grand opera, and there's some celebrating, but there's a fellow brooding
2: amongst them. (laughs) You always need somebody standing in the corner brooding while everyone is dancing in an opera.
0: Why don't we find out who some of the characters are on stage at this point?
2: Yes. So the, the fellow who's been glowering in the corner is William Tell, our protagonist. But we're going to leave him to the side for a minute and let him glower because we're opening this scene really looking at the peasants of the countryside and they are dancing because they are celebrating a couple of marriages
0: A few few, marriages, I believe.
2: (laughs) I think it's three (laughs) marriages. So, So very efficient marriage ceremony. And they are all very happy. They're celebrating the beauties of nature, which is a really important element to nationalism generally and this opera specifically. We see that in the play as well, that uh, a lot of nationalist literature centers on the the beating heart of a country is its common people, its peasantry. The, they're the ones that have true nobility.
0: So nationalism can mean a lot of different things to different people and at different points in time. Grant, could I ask you to address what nationalism means at this point in time yeah
1: so nationalism or what it means at this point in time anyway is something that's almost taken for granted in our modern world the idea that there are nations that they exist as real things and not simply as feudal structures where loyalty is owed to a baron or a duke or a king there are cultures that represent nations, and that these nations should be represented in some fashion as states, the nation-state. Countries that share cultural similarities to one another, and where the popular will, the will of the people, is in some way represented. And this gets tied up very much with Romanticism, broadly writ from the proto-Romanticism of somebody like Rousseau, all the way through uh, Wagner, and on into the romantic descriptions of uh nationalism that we find in the 20th century uh both their positive and negative variations in contrast to the idea of politics as fundamentally being about allegiance to a person the monarch the crown politics in the nationalist conception is that allegiance is to the nation to the group everybody working together
0: and, and so for this opera to start with this celebration of the populace and have a certain amount of folk tunes going on celebrating the people getting married, it's a real grounding in what they value mm-hmm. and the values that are going to be fought for as the story continues. And you see Tell and his compatriots speaking against the rule of the foreigners of the Habsburgs. Well, this is going to be quite an opera. It's a grand opera. We warned you all. (laughs) We managed to introduce one character so far. (laughs) We have. We have. But, you know, I, I have to say, just because you mentioned Wagner briefly, Wagner loved this opera. He loved Rossini. And I've heard mentioned by critic after critic after critic, people like Verdi and Wagner needed Rossini and what he did particularly with William Tell as an inspiration to springboard off of to do what they did later on. It's an important opera, Rossini's an important composer. So let's hear about more of these characters.
2: <laughs> so the peasants are the first people we really see. The other character that I was going to introduce next, Melkthal, is a perfect bridge because we're talking about the fatherland. He is the father figure in this play. He is an elder in the town and he is overseeing these marriages when we first meet him. He has a son named Arnold, who is another important character that we will get to know. The Tenor. He is the Tenor with a capital T. This, it gives him a lot of beautiful stuff to work with in this opera but arnold is another one of our really important characters he's one of our lovers and he is in love with a woman named mathilde and mathilde is a princess she is a Hopsburg princess and so we've got a little bit of romeo and juliet type story going on here where arnold is going to be caught between his love for the ruling Habsburg's princess and his loyalty to his father and his fatherland. So much more to come on that. Those are our our main characters. The other people that are important to know in this first act are William Tell himself's family. So he has a wife whose name is, I'm gonna let Pat say it. Edwige. Edwige.
0: It sounds Italian when I say it, I guess. (laughs) It does.
2: Edwige and Tell have a son named Jemmy, who will also become important. And then at the end of the act, we will meet some revolutionaries, some freedom fighters, most importantly, a man named Lutold. And we will be introduced to our villain, whose name is Gessler. Yes. Gessler is the governor, the Austrian governor, and he is a base and is our, our villain of the piece.
0: He's our Scarpia, isn't he? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So through all the celebrations that are going on on stage with these marriages and all the beautiful dances that we see and all these songs praising marriage and the dignity of work, we've got William Tell, as I said before, brooding and interjecting periodically to let us know that all is not well. It's not all celebration. He's constantly reminding us and anyone who will listen to him, that they're not free people, mm. that they have overlords. And it it's a problem, not in the abstract, but it's a problem that will affect their lives. Maybe not this minute, but it will affect their lives in very real ways. For the moment, though, he's very friendly with this village elder, Arnold's father. Arnold is his, his friend and compatriot. And he tells Melch this is great, you've done a good day's work, why don't you Have a nice little rest in your house. Melktal takes a moment to say, ah, you're married, William. I wish my son were getting married. Well, of course, as Kathleen has told us, (laughs) we know Arnold's in love, but he's not in love with a nice Tyrolean girl, is he? Uh
2: (laughs) Nope, he had to fall in love with the person he shouldn't. How shocking.
0: (laughs) And at that point in time, we see Arnold, and we have Arnold telling us all about his love for the princess who is a (laughs) Hapsburg.
3: Ma force te servit me, Je te the toi, la fille des lois Toi, qu'une puissance perfide one whos Pour des maîtres ingrats Avoir connu sous eux La gloire des combats Voilà ma honte aussi ma mes pleurs l'ont effacée A la funeste amour Ne la rappelons pas Mais quel bruit col privi dechi roca bavilla lomagno lo corsono sul
1: what are those i hear hunting horns
2: Hark! Is that a hunting horn, I hear?
0: I believe that was a hunting horn. Good work, you two. (laughs) And, 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 you know who else thinks it's a hunting horn? Arnold thinks it's a hunting horn, and he wants to get out of there because he thinks perhaps Gessler will be with them. Yeah, that's the baddie, and he doesn't really want to run into Gessler. But his buddy William Tell stops him, and he says, Arnold, my friend. You're a good Swiss patriot. Are you going to join us in fighting against our evil overlords?
2: And Arnold is very conflicted, as we've talked about before, because if he joins with Tell, then he's expressly going against what he feels for Mathilde, as we we just listened to. So Arnold is, is very torn right now. So at the end of Arnold soul searching about whether he's going to choose Matilde or the fatherland he is going to choose the girl he he's ready to give it up for her
1: wait he's choosing love over duty in an opera color me shocked
2: I'm sure no tragedy will come out of this
1: yeah it'll probably work out great
2: (laughs) well
0: his friend William Tell tries to tell him think of your father he must be protected Mm Mm-hmm. little foreshadow I'm sure
2: the dad will be fine (laughs) (laughs)
0: Think of your country, it must be avenged, it must be avenged, it must be avenged. And he does reflect, oh my father, oh my country, and Tell even observes that he turns pale. But then he thinks about his love for Matilda, and nothing else matters. That's it, it's all Matilda. (laughs) And picking Matilda doesn't mean he's not going to fight, of course. Really? Really. Picking Matilda means he's going to fight against his brothers, Mm. his compatriots. It means he's going to fight with the Habsburgs against the Swiss.
1: What a traitor.
2: Oh, Arnold. Is she really worth it? Is she worth it?
0: Well, nevertheless, Tell says he believes in his heart that Arnold will fight for his countrymen at the end of the day. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as the story goes along.
2: So the marriages take place, and they are blessed by the elder, by Melthal, And there's a lot of singing and dancing, and there is an archery contest in which uh, William Tell's young son, Jemmy, participates, and then wins with his first shot, because he has inherited his archery skills from his famous archer father, William. And good training.
1: Wait a second, I have lots of questions about this archery contest. They just call it when someone does a single good shot? Was everyone just, like, missing until yep. this guy did it?
0: He's the best. He's, He's the, the best. best. His father is great, good training, good genes, steady hands.
2: Yes, it's just like in, in Robin Hood, when he splits the, the arrow in half with another arrow. What, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep keep splitting arrows in half? you got to call it at some point.
1: Ah, oh, yes, Robin Hood. What an interesting analogy. Maybe we'll come back to that later. Seems likely. In all seriousness, this story is very Robin Hood. It's set within a century, century and a half of the same time period as the Robin Hood legend is set. It features a heroic archer who stands up for the people against the tyrants. It features these confused love stories where a woman in the nobility is caught up in all of this. And... It speaks to some of these same deep concerns about the relationship between the peasantry and the nobility, between the poor and the rich, and ultimately between the common folk and overlords who may not be from the area, may not be culturally familiar with the area, and may just
0: simply be very
1: different from the people they are
0: the overlords of. Fascinating connection. I had never thought of that one.
2: Yeah, we even have the the love story, of course. Maid Marian was part of the ruling class, but came to see that Robin Hood and the Merry Men's way of life was the correct one. Oh, I wonder if that'll happen with Matilde. <laughs> Who knows?
1: <laughs> and both of these stories have this have this history of developing and being mm-hmm. repurposed, as myths are wont to do. We mentioned how, how this has some similarities to King Arthur myth in terms mm-hmm. of how it evolves. And that's certainly true. It's also it's also got similarities to this Robin Hood thing, where was there an actual person Robin Hood? Was there an actual person William Tell? Maybe. But one way or the other, they became extremely important as symbols for standing up to authority, and notably as archers. Archery is the weapon that a poor person can use against a rich person. Rich people ride on horses, and they've got lances and armor and things. But a poor person who's got his hunting bow and is a good shot with it. Well, maybe that's all he needs.
2: And it's the way in which a lot of people who were starving were able to get food for themselves and their families by poaching. Yes. Obviously, something that figures in the Robin Hood story as well.
1: Yeah, and um, not to get too much into it, the presence of rivers in both this story and the Robin Hood story, crossing rivers, is a very big deal in both of these stories, precisely because they're the kind of obstacle that is small and ordinary and not a thing kings spend a lot of time thinking about, but represents real forces of chaos and danger to the common people
0: perfect segue back to our story (laughs) we we're going to meet that river very soon and we have a new character literally run onto the scene here jemmy's going to say quick someone's coming Le told And he's got an axe in his hand. And not only does he have an axe in his hand, there's blood on the axe.
2: I think a murder's been done. Yeah, so Lutold is a herdsman. He's he's very much like these people we've seen celebrating, a peasant, one of the common people. And he has just killed one of Gessler's soldiers with this bloody axe. Why
0: would he do such a dreadful thing as to kill one of the soldiers of this evil man?
2: Well, he had the... He had the best excuse possible. He was defending the honor of his family, of his daughter. One of Gessler's soldiers tried to tried to violate his daughter, and he killed the man before he could do that. So it is seen unequivocally, Lutold is clearly in the right in this story, and Gessler and his men are villains of the piece. But I'm sure Gessler would not see it that way. Lutold is looking for a way to escape the vengeance of Gessler, vengeance disguised as justice. And he needs to get across the lake to the opposite shore where they can't reach him.
0: But the weather's not not
2: good. There is a giant storm that's been brewing this whole time, just as we've seen Tell glowering in the corner as the dark cloud on the wedding. So has there been a dark cloud moving over the lake and now it is storming.
1: Wait, a literal storm is brewing? A
2: literal storm is a brewing.
1: In addition to the obvious metaphorical storm brewing.
2: Indeed, the tempest within our souls. (laughs) So the question becomes who is brave enough and skilled enough to take Lutold across the lake to safety?
0: Well, there's a fisherman with a boat and he approaches the fisherman and he's very skilled with his boat. But? But the fisherman says, are you crazy? Not in this weather. Not on your life. There's a rock. I'd I'd be dead. You'd be dead. I'd be insane to do that. But guess who's not just good with a bow and arrow?
2: And is also insane. (laughs) He's good at everything.
0: (laughs) And very, very brave.
2: And that is our hero, William Tell.
0: Yes, the brave and talented baritone William Tell jumps in to the boat with the father who defended his daughter's honor escaping from Gessler, and William Tell, by the way, has noted that Arnold has disappeared because he doesn't want to encounter Gessler either. And Tell rose to safety out of the clutches of the Habsburg henchman who wants to see justice done in his eyes, but not certainly in Tell's eyes.
2: There's a great part in the play where Tell says, we may die, but it's better to trust nature, to trust God and nature than to trust the justice of a man like Gessler. So they're really entrusting themselves into the hands of God rather than try to face the justice of man because they know that's not real justice.
0: That's right. And we mentioned that William Tell's wife is there and she she's obviously and understandably concerned for her husband's safety and she tries to stop him and he says, no, I, I have to do this. So Tell entrusts his wife and his young son to the care of the village elder, Arnold's father, Melktal, And he entrusts his own care, along with Lutold's, to God's care. And they do, in fact, reach the other side. And the villagers cheer when they see that they have reached safety. And when Gessler arrives and he see the villagers celebrating that safe arrival on the other side, he's none too pleased.
1: And how are the villagers celebrating?
0: Prayers are important. Well, before, before they even reach the shore, the whole chorus of the villagers sing to God for their safe arrival, God of goodness, God all-powerful, confound the oppressor's rage, deign to protect these two from shipwreck. And the soldiers, what they sing is, let him die, let him die. So they're praying for the death of the one that they want to get and they manage to get to the other side. And Edwige, she says, I recognize God's handiwork. And the others echo that. They recognize God was at work in their salvation.
1: And it's interesting because the prototypical story of liberation from oppression, in the Bible anyway, is this passage through a stormy Mm -hmm. sea, the crossing of the sea or the Red Sea. And so there's this echo there, but there's also this this sense, this odd, really anachronistic sense of a religious conflict where you got the Habsburgs and the Swiss on opposite sides here. Historically speaking, William Tell lived in a time when all of Western Europe was Catholic of one description or another. But later on, Austrian control became very associated with Catholicism and Switzerland was very religiously diverse. There were cantons with many different faiths. And so questions of religious freedom were a major part of what was at stake in Switzerland and several other countries' struggle for self-determination.
0: Yes. And ultimately, as these angry soldiers come in and they're impotent to do anything about the men who have escaped, They turn their rage on the villagers who are now giving prayers of thanksgiving on their knees. And now they're not just giving prayers of thanksgiving, they're asking God for protection from the swords of the evildoers who are turning their rage on their villagers who said, well, somebody must have helped them escape. It's somebody's boat. You all are in league with them, we know that. And finally, they realize, well, who's in charge here? Melkthal. Right, and at the end of the day, he's dragged off by the soldiers. In fact, it's not just the end of the day, it's the end of Act One. He's taken into custody by all the soldiers. This opera is William Tell by Rossini. Kathleen is here to help us with the story and Grant is here to help us with a lot of the history and I'm your host, Pat Wright, to help however I can. (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen, will you give us the
2: setting as we open on the second
0: act of our four act opera here?
2: Sure, so we are in the middle of a hunting party. There's ladies and gentlemen and soldiers and horns and shepherds. Everyone is returning from this grand hunt as evening is falling. And it's another instance of really how important nature is and how important the the traditions of the countryside are. But it's also, we see the different classes here. So it's the ladies and gentlemen, not the peasants that we're focusing on now. And a part of this hunting group is a lovely young woman we've been talking about but haven't met yet, and her name is Mathilde. Oh, we have heard about her. Yes, she is Arnold's love. He is focused on her. She is a princess, an Austrian princess, and we are about to learn some more about her relationship with Arnold. She is Austrian, and Arnold is, of course, on the opposite side. He is Swiss
0: I think Mathilde is going to find herself with a few moments alone on stage to contemplate her situation <laughs> and in fact she's going to have the opportunity to sing Sombra Foret gloomy forest or somber forest sad and wild wilderness here she's going to pour out her heart and this is one of the most beloved songs of this entire bel canto opera <laughs> the Princess Matilda from the Habsburg Empire, the Austrians, the dominant power. Unbeknownst to her, while she's singing this song about her love, Arnold, her love, one of the Swiss, has come up unnoticed. And he's a little shy to make his presence known.
2: He's a little shy because he's so far below her in station.
0: But they have had a moment of...
2: They had a meet-cute where he saved her from an avalanche, which (laughs) always does it for me. (laughs) Well, that's romantic. (laughs) Always love a man who saves your life from a natural disaster. That, as we know, is is one of the the great attractions.
0: (laughs) And she's a little concerned, too, that maybe she oughtn't be with him because he's not necessarily appropriate mate material for her either. The rest of the world would not consider him worthy of a princess.
2: Yes, Matilda, she's not really political at this point. Uh, She is more seeing it as a strict class divide where his father is the head peasant of the village, but still is not of noble blood. And she is a princess, whereas we are looking at it and we're understanding there's obviously deeper political ramifications as well. But (laughs) the course of true love never did run smooth.
0: No, and I think they're gonna maybe work their way past a few of these hesitations, and maybe, because it's opera, work their way towards a duet?
2: (laughs) Yes, it doesn't take them too long to realize that their feelings are, are mutual, and we get this beautiful duet where they are hesitant at first, but then launch into this beautiful harmony between the two of them.
0: Sweet admission, this tender way you speak makes my heart drunk
2: with delight. I quote. (laughs) But after they've had this beautiful moment of harmony, we get this abrupt change where off in the distance we hear horns playing. And it isn't the hunting horns that we were hearing before. Instead, this is more of a call to battle. And all of a sudden, the political world around them rushes in, and they have to have that conversation.
0: Well, Grant, what's the political world going to mean for these two lovers?
1: It's a tricky situation. He's in love with the enemy, effectively. He's in love with this woman who, from her birth and breeding and everything else, represents the forces that keep the Swiss people down. And again, historically speaking, there's, there's two levels here. One is the actual William Tell legend and the things that happened or didn't happen or kind of happened 700 years ago. But then there's the context in which the opera was released, which is to say the great conflict between the noble and common people. And he is a distinguished but still common person. And she is of the nobility. And that puts them in a very strange place, because the common people who are looking to get ahead have a choice do they throw their lot in with the other common people or do they become quizzlings to the aristocracy
0: so what does she want from him
1: well she is not political she wants him to win her and to win glory and that is what she proposes
0: she's going to she's going to encourage him go out there and fight win glory and make the world approve of you as my choice to be loved by me. And that's what you're gonna hear after those trumpets, you're gonna hear her egging him on to glory on the field of battle. Arnold and Matilda's duet and continuing in the duet with Matilda and Arnold with both of them wanting the same thing his military success and tying that together with the success of their love you're going to hear them sing about her faithfulness to him Matilda Constanta Matilda ever faithful And we're going to hear just a little excerpt from this duet, which follows immediately from the duet that we heard a moment ago.
2: Mathilde and Arnold talking about their love for each other. We are getting towards the end of act two here. We've had this beautiful love scene, but the, the horns of war have intruded on this, this beautiful love scene. And now Mathilde is going to hurry off because our main character, William Tell, is going to be coming back into the scene. He sees Arnold with Mathilde and immediately says, what are you doing with this Austrian princess? You are betraying us, basically. And Arnold, he says, I love her. How dare you spy on us? But that is not going to last for long because William Tell says, you don't understand. Her people have captured your father and tortured him and he is now dead. And so suddenly we have a big change in the action of this opera.
1: Don't you hate it when a political drama intrudes on your love story?
2: Yeah, and it's not just William Tell who come in. We have our
0: our baritone, William Tell. We have our tenor, Arnold. And uh, they bring along a bass for good measure.
2: (laughs) Yes. And Arnold is going to sing about his sorrow over his father's death and also his change of heart in whose side he's going to fight for. So we're going to have these three men talk about fighting and potentially dying for the freedom of Switzerland.
3: we Je suis le roi de la vie, 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 de la
0: You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by... Kathleen.
1: And Grant. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming.
2: If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes.
0: And for an extended version of our conversation about Rossini's William Tell, go to the KHOL website, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned, the second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. Today we are listening to Rossini's great opera, his final opera, William Tell, Guillaume Tell, the grand opera that premiered in Paris in 1829. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by wonderful frequent guest co-hosts.
2: Kat Vandwell. And Grant.
0: Grant and Kat, thank you so much for joining me today to help with this opera. It's got a lot going on. But before we jump back into the story and the literature, I want to take a moment to thank the performers who made the recording possible that we're listening to today. This recording was made in 1973. It features the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Lamberto Gardelli and the Ambrosian Opera Chorus of the Ambrosian
1: Math- Opera Chorus. That's an awesome name.
0: It is yes. they, they feature on some number of our recordings. They're, they are an awesome chorus and we're grateful for their, their excellent work. The role of Matilde is sung by the great Montserrat Caballé, and the role of Arnold is sung by Nikolai Geda, William Tell, is sung by Gabrielle Bacquier. Jemmy is a trouser roll sung by Maddy Mesple. William Tell's wife is sung by Jocelyn Taillon. The role of Gessler is sung by the bass Louis Hendrix. And now it is time for <laughs> the infamous opera helmet quiz. Kathleen, I'm not sure Grant's been carrying his weight here, story-wise.
2: I think it's time to to give Grant a little pop quiz.
0: Yeah, Grant. Bring us up to speed. Succinctly.
1: All right, so, open to a trumpet fanfare. Yellow text scrolls down the screen, and two starships are locked in battle. The evil empire is coming after the scrappy band of rebels. And the scrappy band of rebels, their only hope is this one perfect shot that's going to turn everything around.
0: I was about to shout out wrong story, and yet, and yet.
1: And yet, we brought it back around. Okay, so what's going on is we are in Switzerland, circa 1300. The Austrians, the Habsburgs, the Holy Roman Empire, neither Holy Roman nor Imperial are in charge, and the people of Switzerland want to be free. They're are many characters one or two of whose names i can pronounce (laughs) and one of them is william tell he believes that the people should be free and is going around saying arnold kenobi you are my only hope (laughs) and it's all complicated by the fact that arnold is in love with the imperial despot's daughter and he's confused and doesn't know who to follow, and then the despot has his father killed, and he swears vengeance, and that brings us right up to about where we are.
2: Well, that was nice and clear. <laughs> it's a Star Wars metaphor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> In all seriousness, there's a reason this is just like Robin Hood. There's a reason this is just like Star Wars. It's this emblematic tale of freedom versus oppression and the things that get in the way the daughter of the tyrant falling in love just it's all so classic so deep in our core and there's a reason why we keep telling and retelling these stories and it's because they keep being relevant
0: brought it home there and one of the things that this opera really has has great poignancy it's not just the love story between arnold and matilda it's it's also the powerful love that you see between father and son well you see it expressed in regret with arnold and his father and we are also going to see it with william tell and his son coming up in the third act very strongly this paternal love
2: yeah, it's the, the whole opera is shaped around these, these three different levels of love or kinds of love. There's love for country, love for family, and then love for your partner, or your spouse. And all three of these are always in tension throughout the work.
0: All right. So when we ended the first half of our show, we had not quite gotten to the end of act two of our four act opera. So Kathleen, can you tell us what is going to happen as we march, literally march our way towards the end of the second act.
2: Yes, of course. So we've left our three voice parts singing about freedom and their willingness to die for Switzerland, and we will have the three cantons come in and affirm that message and say again that they are all coming together and they're willing to to go to war, to, to stage a revolution. And at this point, I feel like it's probably a good idea to talk a little bit about what these cantons are that we've mentioned before. And to that, I I will kick it over to Grant. So
1: basically, the world in the time of William Tell is feudal. There are peasants who work for their local lord, who works for his local count, who works for his local duke, who works for their local king, and so on and so forth, all the way up to the emperor, if they have an emperor. And the Swiss try to develop a kind of different system. And in certain ways, it has echoes of our more modern, more democratic system, although it was certainly very far from that, particularly in this time. And each of the areas ended up establishing governance. Now, Switzerland is a confusing country with four major languages, but the name that gets used for these areas, these municipalities, these regions it's somewhere in between a state and a city is cantons and there have been gradually more and more of them over history and to this day switzerland is organized into cantons in the same way that the united states is organized into states or canada into provinces and these have their heraldic symbols and they've got a lot of regional pride and it all dates back To this formative event where three of these areas that would come to be known as cantons they joined together to form a alliance of mutual defense not based on overlordship but based on mutual cooperation
0: and are you relating that to this particular event
1: Yeah, part of the William Tell myth is about the formation of Switzerland. And it begins with this idea that these are going to not be structured hierarchically, but all of them are going to work together for mutual defense. It's why Switzerland got to be Switzerland. It's that a few of these local areas decided, hey, we don't want emperors telling us what to do. Instead, we're going to band together and we'll protect each other. And so Switzerland ended up as this this strange, fascinating, and rather unusual place in the heart of Europe, an exception to so many of the rules of how Europe was run at the time. And that means that in the 19th century, when people are looking for a way forward that's apart from the despots and the monarchs and the autocrats, that they look back to this time where in an age of feudalism, people came up with something that wasn't a total break from the past, but it was something new.
0: And so the, the geography and the, the natural setting of Switzerland is also an element involved here, not just with the Romanticism being depicted in the opera. Also, the mountainous division of the peoples encourages these separations of the cantons, is, is my understanding
1: yes yes certainly and 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 also helped in terms of them maintaining their independence it meant that they simultaneously had extraordinarily defensible terrain they could protect themselves against superior armies but because it's mountainous terrain they didn't have a lot of farmland they didn't have a lot of people they couldn't have a huge population and so this mutual defense was the way that they were able to protect themselves but yeah it's it, switzerland is an is an interesting country I, if you're Wanting to know the history of Switzerland, or let's be real, any country, look at a topographical map of it. (laughs) It's a bumpy place, and to this day you can see in a population density map where the cantons formed and where they established their power base, And it's interesting because they ended up as this extraordinarily diverse place, religiously, linguistically. Again, Switzerland has four major languages. It was religiously diverse in a time when that was very much not the norm. And all of this was made possible by the fact that there was no central authority that was imposing any kind of uniformity. It was this this pact of mutual cooperation.
0: And so you're telling us this also by way of telling us this is why we care and why they care about the legend of William Tell.
1: Yeah. When you have institutions that are institutions of people rather than of individuals, institutions of the people as groups, you often end up with stories like the Robin Hood legend or like the William Tell legend or like the many legends that come out of the American Revolution about individual people. These things were great movements that involve lots of people and so there is something to be said about imagining or glorifying some particular individual to get the idea of the romance of it across the william tell story undergirds this idea of a new kind of polity and again like that's to do with the original context, and then there's the, the 19th century context where he serves as this nationalist, democratic, and in certain ways liberal, classical liberal, folk hero and avatar of what people are looking for in changing their societies.
0: Wow. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, but I think it's good. It's good to know why Rossini and all these people have devoted themselves to this story to this legend well let's let's hear the rousing conclusion to the second act with all of these men on stage devoting themselves to arms to arms for everyone and this is William Tell. We are ready to start act three and act three's first scene has Matilda and Arnold together and Arnold has some bad news for Matilda.
2: Yes when Matilda last saw him she was under the impression that he was going to go off and fight for Austria and win the respect and admiration of his fellows and be worthy of her hand even though he is not of noble blood. But he has learned that his father has been murdered by Gessler, the Austrian leader-commander. And Matilda, obviously because she is an Austrian noblewoman, he sees this as an insurmountable obstacle. He has chosen to avenge his father's death, to fight for his country, and Matilda and Arnold realize that their love is... the barriers are, are too high for their love. So they sing about that and about really saying a farewell to each other. Yes,
0: and she's she's going to sing, All hope for our love is over when my life has scarcely begun. Finally, to complete my misery, a crime deprives you of a father, and I cannot mourn him with you. It's quite sad. It is very sad. But beautiful Balcanto singing. <laughs> ¶¶ heard the heartbreak of Mathilde and Arnold as they've had to part. Arnold must defend his homeland against the aggressors and against the insult that has been done by the murder of his father. And now we're in the palace grounds where there is a ceremony, a celebration that is being Forced on the people by Gessler, it's celebrating, or so he wants them to celebrate, 100 years of rule by the Habsburgs over the Swiss. He wants them to be happy. How's it going, Kathleen?
2: Uh, they're not too happy. And and that's in large part due to the fact that the celebration is is really a way to mock and, and sort of mentally torture the Swiss. He is making the the people sing and dance. He is having the soldiers harass the Swiss women and demean the Swiss men. He's put his hat on top of a pole in the middle of the square and he's making everyone who walks by pay homage to it and bow down to it. So it's really demeaning and kind of disgusting behavior that's going on right here. So the Swiss are not happy
0: no but i'll tell you what there is a lot of dance music and this is our opportunity in our grand opera for the ballet to occur
1: and about that hat it's a weird part of the story right (laughs) we're like okay maybe he's doing these things to humiliate them but it's an odd thing right that the governor would be like okay everybody bow down to my hat
0: it's a long-standing part of the william tell legend though isn't it
1: yes yes it's a very deep part of the legend in spite of the fact that it's a hard thing to imagine, and the reason is that it ties in with the history of domination, but also some of these religious things at stake. That, of course, to bow down to a hat in the monotheistic tradition is, is idolatry. And so there's a reference here to similar stories one finds, for instance, in the Bible. The story where Daniel refuses to bow down when the trumpets sound, or when Mordecai refuses to prostrate himself before Haman. You have these stories where the push for integrity, for honor, for decency, is tied up with refusing to bow down to unjust authority in a way that is idolatrous. And I think that you're supposed to think about those stories, those old stories when we're seeing the governor ridiculously demand that everyone bow down before his hat.
0: Because it's so important to him to assert authority and he he just won't put up with any, any resistance to that. And when it's pointed out to him that there is a man and his son who are not complying, he yells, seize him, seize him. And of course that person is William Tell and his son.
1: I wonder what will happen to
0: them. <laughs> well, before we see what happens to them, I think we need to hear a little bit of what everyone says and sings in response to this command. It's just this beautiful interweaving of voices. I just love this piece. <laughs>
3: The church of the
2: Gessler has ordered that William Tell be seized after Tell and Jemmy refuse to bow to this really offensive symbol of their oppression. One of the things that really sets Gessler apart from other villains is his cruelty, but also his pettiness in this opera. So as soon as he realizes that he's arresting this father and son and and Tell urges his son to flee, but Jemmy is is determined to stay with his father. You can see the affection between them. As soon as Gessler sees this affection, this positive emotion, he uses it against Tell and Jemmy. So he is inspired to put together this test. He says, all right, so you're this great archer. Well, you have to shoot an apple off of your son's head. And if you don't, I will kill you. What a guy. What a guy. Yes. And he, he wants to use Tell's fame and strength against him. So he will not only execute him, but also embarrass him. And he's being kind of, well, he's being very cruel, but he's being kind of smart too here. Because Tell is this symbol of Swiss nationalism. He's the symbol of the great Swiss archer. And if he's able to bring him down to earth by showing that he's not that good after all, Maybe it will demoralize this revolution that he knows is fomenting. But it's very cruel. And we are about to hear one of the more famous pieces from the opera, where Tell implores his son to stay as still as possible.
0: And one of the things that is so tender and sweet about this is that repeatedly, Jemmy, his son, says, Father, I'm not afraid. You're the best archer in the world. I trust you completely you're great at this. You're so good. It's going to be fine. And, and you just see the confidence that has drained from William Tell, because he's put his son in in such peril, Mm -hmm. you see the confidence flowing from the son back into the father, and you see the father gaining the strength that this trusting son has in him. And, And you see that maybe just maybe this impossible situation is going to work out. And right before he has to actually take the shot, he says, well, at least let me hug my son goodbye. And and for some reason, Gessler lets him. And that's when he has this tender moment with his son. But he does say, listen, Jemmy, if you get a chance to get back and see your mother, tell her, light all the signal fires and tell everyone, the rebellion is on in full force, no more waiting. And I mention that now because it may come up later. (laughs) Spoilers. So he says, okay, William tells weapons had been taken away from him, of course, when they seized him. But once this challenge was made, he, of course, asked for his weapons back. When he takes his crossbow, he takes not just one bolt, but he surreptitiously takes a second bolt as well for his crossbow, hiding the second bolt knowing that if he accidentally kills his son, he can quickly grab the second bolt and shoot and kill Gessler as well. Oof. Yeah, that's serious business here. But Jemmy, he's just focused on his father and he has all the trust in the world. In fact, when Gessler says tie up the boy, Jemmy says, no, you don't have to tie me up. I won't move. I'm going to stand still. My father's got this. It'll be fine. So... William Tell sings, Stand Perfectly Still, My Son. And by the way, this was the song that uh, Richard Wagner thought was absolutely exquisite. And he truly revered this song that Rossini had written. Still, my son is what William Tell was telling his son. And this is a very famous part of a very famous legend.
2: Yes. Yes, I I think... (laughs) We both agree. Most people, I think, probably don't know where they know this from, but they know it anyway. They know that there's some story of somebody having to shoot an arrow off of someone's head. And it shows up in a lot of other pop culture, too. I remember there being a scene in the comic movie The Swan Princess (laughs) in which somebody has to do this, which is a William Tell reference. Now you finally know where you know that from.
0: Well, it's a horrifying thought, and, and it's depicted in all of its horrifying detail here, the thought of a father having to shoot an apple off of his son's head. How does this end up, Grant?
1: It turns out that William Tell is every bit as good as his reputation says he is. He shoots the arrow and it goes perfectly.
0: Victory, the townspeople, the Swiss townspeople (laughs) shout. They are so relieved. They shout in triumph and in joy.
2: But that joy is, is of course, going to be short-lived because the villains, always set up tests that even if you pass them, you have to fail in some way. So as soon as they celebrate, Gessler is so enraged and and Tell is so surprised that he's actually done this correctly that he drops the other bolt that he's holding in his hand, which alerts Gessler to the fact that he was planning on perhaps using that against him.
1: And in fact, he admits as much.
2: Yes, he's very honest. (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That when...
0: Gessler says what was that bolt for
2: he's like well uh I was gonna shoot you if I if I didn't you know if I didn't succeed (laughs) that is illegal to say that you were gonna murder someone so Tell is still in trouble well what does Gessler do about all this Gessler orders that Tell immediately be arrested and executed along with his young son because his cruelty really knows no bounds how's William Tell gonna get out of this one Well, we have a character that we know has a soft heart who comes in suddenly, right, as Gessler is ordering that Jemmy and Tell both be executed. And that's Mathilde, the lover that we've been with earlier. And she, even though she is Austrian, she's part of the ruling Austrian class, she sees this and she's horrified that her own people would be governing in this way because she was not raised to believe that you you execute children <laughs> even though she's the oppressor she sees that as wrong so she exerts whatever power she has to save jemmy's life and claims him for the emperor but there's nothing really she can do about tell at this point
0: yeah the the tension and the emotions are rising in everyone present on stage mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people present on stage.
2: Oh yeah, we've got everybody together for the big finale of this act. (laughs) And Gessler at this point
0: is seething Mm -hmm. because he cannot contradict the princess when she takes charge of the child.
2: So what does Gessler have in store for William Tell? Gessler, not content with the villainy he's achieved so far, has decided to be a true Bond villain and throw Tell to the crocodiles.
0: Yeah, what could go wrong there, huh?
2: It's true, although there might be a ray of hope here, because Mm. Tell, as we know, is the only one that was able to pilot the boat in the very first scene, and he's about to go out on the lake again. So who knows what's in store?
0: Well, you'll just have to stay tuned for Act (laughs) 4. Meanwhile, we're going to wrap up Act 3, and we've got the soldiers And we've got Gessler and his henchman uh, Rudolfa on stage, all gnashing their teeth about their concerns. We've got the Swiss people begging for mercy for William Tell. We've got Mathilde. We've got Jemmy, who's desperately worried about his father. All of these people and William Tell himself. There is all of this incredibly strong emotion and all of these people telling us all of the things that they're concerned about, but it's, it's beautiful. And I want you all to listen to William Tell's baritone ringing out, and he is going to sing anathema to Gessler. And you'll hear that clearly. It will not be mixed in and blended. It will be repeated, but you will hear it once clearly. Grant, what does it mean when he yells anathema to Gessler?
1: ANATHEMA is a religious term that refers to the kind of thing that leads to perdition, that leads to damnation, that leads to hell. In the canons of the ancient church, they would write these these lists of things that, let him be anathema who, and then some thing that is beyond the pale. And what they're saying here is that this... Wrong is so great that it sets him up for damnation.
0: Well, this is not doing anything to appease the anger of Gessler and the soldiers. so the the emotion continues high. And let's close out Act Three of William Tell. Yeah.
2: listening to William Tell and we are about to start the final act.
0: We are in the home of the recently deceased Melchtal, Arnold's father, and Arnold is there alone. He's missing his father and he feels great guilt at having abandoned his father just even for a moment in his mind thinking of the glory and winning Mathilde's approval. And he has a moment remembering about this place where he grew up.
2: Yes, this scene really explores Arnold's humanity. We've seen him as this brash, young man who's in love with someone he can't have. But we haven't really seen Arnold by himself that much. And this gives us a chance to really get inside of his mind and see how he's feeling and how torn he is and how much grief he feels. So he sings this this beautiful song about his father and about this home that they used to live in together. And it feels like the world is really falling apart around him. But there is a sort of strangeness to the way this opera keeps switching us back and forth between these two characters. We have these heroic, action-filled scenes with Tell, very political, and then we're in these contemplative, quiet, romantic, self-reflective scenes with Arnold. Okay, so we are going
0: to listen to this beautiful song, but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna ask you the question that I have had since the first time I saw this opera. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, Grant. I'm going to have a question for you in a few minutes. But no, Kathleen, uh... my question for you is, why do we call this opera William Tell? Because this really feels like Arnold's story.
2: It It is Arnold's story. In, Sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say?
0: Well, I'm I'm simply going to say it because in some ways, because of the way the composer gives him these amazing arias, these show-stopping arias. This is one of them. So certainly the composer treats him with that level of respect, but also because of the character development that goes on here. I think William Tell stays the character that he is throughout. Arnold really develops as a character. I think
2: there's a couple of potential answers to this. One, I think that our interest in Arnold as a character and our seeing him as someone who should be the main character is sort of a modern conception. This idea that, that the hero should have character development, that in order for the story to be about somebody, it has to be the person who undergoes change, is really a fairly modern conception of story. I would also say the more straightforward answer is that William Tell is bigger than the story. He's representative. He's the Paul Bunyan, he's the the Achilles. You could see this in in the Iliad too. You know, we've been debating for literally millennia, is it Achilles' story or is it Hector's story? And I think today a lot of people are more drawn to a character like Hector because he's more human. He changes. Achilles is this great hero. He's not really human. He's part human and part god. And Tell is kind of like that. He's sort of extra-human, superhuman. And I think right now we're drawn more to stories of flawed people who change over time, but this story is really known by its larger-than-life hero character, and that's Tell.
0: Okay, back to Arnold. (laughs) Let's hear him lamenting the death of his father in Ancestral Home, Asile Héréditaire. Arnold in William Tell. Well he's lamented the death of his father but now the Swiss Confederates are on the scene and they're ready to work with him as their leader because he is the leader now that William Tell is in captivity and essentially presumed dead under Gessler and his men and Arnold and all of the Confederates, they are ready to to fight for Swiss independence. They've had enough of this oppression and they're going to gather and they are going to resist. And that's what takes up the rest of the first scene of act four, the final act of William Tell. In the second scene, the final scene of the final act, of William Tell, this long, grand opera. We find ourselves on a rocky shore at the edge of Lake Lucerne, and we are with the Swiss women, and we see William Tell's wife, Edwige, and she is in distress. She's worried about her husband, and all the women are worried about all the men, and she assumes that her husband might be dead, her son might be dead, Imagine the relief when her son comes running in, but her son is not alone.
2: Yes, so Jemmy is accompanied by Mathilde, who, as we saw in the previous act, saved Jemmy's life by using her power, her political power, to fight for the Swiss this time rather than the Austrians. She saved Jemmy's life, and she returns him to his mother in this very beautiful, touching scene where the two women meet for the first time. You're able to see how this is impacting the women in in these heroes' lives. Yes, and true
0: to form, when Jemmy hears his mother being concerned about her husband, Jemmy says, don't worry, daddy will know what to do, <laughs>
2: which is just. Nothing gets this kid's spirits down the entire opera. <laughs> unbelievable (laughs) unbelievable and we're just gonna hear a
0: little snippet of the song that Mathilde sings to Edwige when she returns Jemmy to his mother it's sweet and it's touching and beautiful about not just here's your son but she's full of praise for what an amazing young man this son is has returned Jemmy to his mother that's a happy ending but we're still desperately worried about William Tell in the opera William Tell by Rossini we're at the end of act four in this grand opera and we've got to wrap things up William Tell's not in good shape he's in the hands of Gessler and his men he's being rowed across the water but Mathilde and Edwige his wife Look across the water and they see a hurricane brewing. And Jemmy sees this this storm at sea. And suddenly Jemmy remembers instructions that his father had given him.
2: Yes, his father had told him to light a signal fire so that everyone would know and be called to arms. And Jemmy has completely forgotten about this, which is understandable considering that he was almost executed. He's had a lot going on. He has a lot going on, but he can't figure out what he's going to do, what he's going to light. And so he runs into the house, his house, takes his father's weapons out, and then sets the entire house on fire so that Tell will be able to see the burning house from the lake in the middle of the hurricane.
0: Desperate times, my goodness. Yeah.
1: Good that he got the weapons though. That'll come in handy.
2: Yes. it's He's a, he's a forward-thinking lad. <laughs> <laughs> he
0: is. It's extreme times. He's got the weapons, the house is on fire, the storm is raging. Edwige falls to her knees in prayer. All the women on the shore fall to their knees in prayer, and they're watching the water. They don't know what else they can do at this point. And in runs Lutold Grant, for the folks who maybe don't remember or weren't listening During Act 1, remind us who Lutold was.
1: Lutold is the shepherd who was defending his daughter's honor and killed an Austrian soldier. As a result, he became hunted by the imperial oppressors and William Tell helped him escape, setting off this confrontation between Tell and Gessler. And so it's fitting that Lutold is the one who comes to tell's rescue after tell came to his rescue in the beginning of the opera
0: and they're all standing there in their prayerful positions watching with rapt attention as this boat is battling the storm and the soldiers and gesslers are holding on to the boat for dear life as as tell like no one else could possibly do is piloting this boat and sure enough William Tell is able to safely manage to get the boat to shore. But once he gets the boat to shore and leaps off, William Tell uses his other foot to kick the boat back into the water with all the soldiers and Gessler on board. Get wrecked. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. And, and not only that jemmy runs up to his father and gives him his weapons and william tell makes good use of those weapons
2: he shoots gessler with a single shot thus once again showing his great prowess as this archer
0: and just so there's no mistake we hear gessler say i die and he falls into the lake
2: A true opera death.
0: (laughs) Well, it doesn't last a a terribly long time.
1: (laughs) No, no aria from the lake? Uh,
0: No, 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 it's not. It's not a long drawn out one, but he does let us know he has died. And the soldiers do make sure that we're clear. It was Tell's Arrow. And immediately after that, Edwige says, Oh, day of liberation. His death puts an end to our woes at last. And I have a question for Grant. Why is the death of one man the liberation for these people? Well it's not of course.
1: Great man history has been conclusively disproven and the reality is that history is the sum of enormous forces and large numbers of people and cultural influences. However to go back to my opera helmet example they blew up the Death Star. It's uh... (laughs) In the end of the Star Wars movies, the bad guys still outnumber the good guys a million to one, but it doesn't matter. We blew up the Death Star. It's that great symbolic victory, that great sign that what seems invincible can be vanquished. And once you know that, then you know that they can triumph. And of course, in something like this, in a historical case, we we know the outcome, the People watching this originally, writing this, knew the outcome, and Switzerland succeeded. It became independent, and remains independent, and stridently independent in fact, to this very day. Sometimes history turns on a single moment. That's not usually how things work, but the legends we tell help us to understand those great and complex forces. And this is just one of those ways of saying what seems inevitable can be defeated. And I don't know. Sometimes I think we need to hear that even today. Hmm,
0: thank you. That's extremely helpful and the mind reels as you think of other situations that you can apply that concept to. Well, bringing us back to our story and our libretto, After other characters in the opera will echo Edwige's celebration of the Day of Liberation and Gessler's death putting an end to their woes, Tell's response is, we must recognize God's help in all of this. All of the Swiss will join in that sentiment, and there's great celebration that will conclude the opera. Let's listen to some of that celebration We will hear Edwige telling us what a radiant day. Jemmy will let us know in the distance we have a boundless horizon. And Arnold will say yes before our eyes, nature unfolds in its magnificence.
2: It's clear throughout the entire opera that nature has been on the side of the Swiss. We see that in the hurricane that comes up that allows Tell to escape. And now, as soon as they have defeated the enemy, the sun comes out and God has clearly listened to their prayers. And we see that very literally in nature because the Swiss peasants and freedom fighters are represented as the people who are most in touch with nature. And so we see that all the way through to the end of the opera.
0: So we have a celebration of freedom and we have a celebration of nature and we have thanks being given to God all wrapped together here at the end of the opera. Well, Grant, Kathleen, thank you so much for helping me tackle this grand opera of Rossini's William Tell here on Opera for Everyone.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for taking me in. It was cold out there.
2: (laughs) Anytime.
0: of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright, joined by
2: Kathleen
1: and Grant. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And to hear even more of our conversation about Rossini's William Tell, go to the KHOL website or wherever you get your podcasts to find the extended version of this show.
2: Opera can be challenging,
0: but everyone loves a good story
2: and a story set
0: to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe opera opera is for everyone. everyone.